Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 176, The Prophecy of Jeremiah. Quote, Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. End quote. Jeremiah 50, 41, 42. This passage of the Bible and others like it were on the minds of the literate men of the church in the ninth century. And you can see why, can't you? The Christian nations of the West, even their monasteries and other religious houses, were being attacked by pagans, by the enemies of God himself. The Vikings must have seemed to be the fulfillment of a dark prophecy. And predictably, many of the learned men of this era were looking at the advent of the Viking Age as either divine retribution for their sins or as a sign that the end times were nigh. They looked to their holy texts for confirmation, for a guide, and for comfort. This is common among devout people under strain, even today. It gives a sense of place, purpose, and of a plan. Vikings attacking, seas warming, people you don't like getting elected, all of these things can be really upsetting. But if you see them as part of a divine plan, of a loving creator, well, then it's a bit less scary. So, it makes sense that the monks and other religious writers were finding ways to put the attacks of the Northmen in the context of biblical duties and prophecy. And so, we have the prophecy of Jeremiah. Never mind that the rest of the section reveals that it's actually talking about Babylon. We'll just forget that part. If you take the quote out of context, it really does seem like it applies to what was happening to the Christian nations of Europe. And that's the way they viewed it. Today, we're kicking off Season 5, and we're going to see the forces of Scandinavia slam into Britain, fundamentally changing the culture. Even today, Brits exhibit parts of Norse culture, and our language has adopted their words. Hell, the distribution of blue eyes on the island still follows the old Danelaw borders. And think about that. The Scandinavian invasions were so intense that over a thousand years later, we can still see how they visibly changed the genetic makeup of a large portion of the island. This was a seismic event in our history. And even today, Brits commemorate the pain and suffering of this era by buying and assembling furniture from Ikea. But back in history, at the beginning of the Viking Age, the Bible was the major lens through which the British understood the broader world around them. So most of our primary sources treat the arrival of the Scandinavians as a biblical event. Not only that, but later writers like Roger of Wendover, who was writing in the 13th century, further reinforced that perspective. By the time that we get to the dawn of modern history, our old friends the Victorians took large portions of what the primary sources were saying just on faith. I'm sure they didn't believe the bit about dragons, but the rest of it? Well, the rest of it seems to have been repeated. And then repeated again. Consequently, you had this odd thing where, until very recently, the Vikings were treated like the shark from Jaws. Possibly a biblical Jaws. 
They were a threat that had no rhyme or reason, an almost natural event that could not have been predicted nor prevented. Most of you probably have a similar image in your head when you hear the word Vikings. Men arriving from nowhere on longships and committing senseless acts of violence and stealing countless amounts of treasure only to fade back into the sea. However, as we'll learn in this season of the British History Podcast, when you look at the state of Europe and the actions taken by the major powers therein, a Scandinavian surge seems less like divine retribution or a heroic surprise attack, depending on your sources, and instead, it starts to look more like a normal response to the incentives that Middle Ages Europe had created for its inhabitants. But those British primary sources, coming mostly from religious men, gave us a very skewed perspective on the Vikings. Many times, especially in older sources, the conflict between Scandinavia and Christian Europe was cast as a religious struggle. But the more we look into it, the more we see that wasn't the case. At least, it wasn't the case for most of the Scandinavians who were going a Viking. It was about the money. And in most cases, the religious context was placed upon it after the fact by their victims. For example, in these historical sources, we hear a lot about Viking attacks destroying religious houses. And not just looting them, but literally burning them to the ground, with the nuns and monks still inside. And that definitely sounds like a direct religious war. Why else would they do something like that? If you're after loot, you don't burn down the building and kill everyone in a grisly manner. That is not plunder. That's the elimination of holy men and women. However, something to keep in mind is that a lot of those stories come from histories written centuries later, such as Roger of Wendover, who was writing about 400 years after this point in the 13th century. So that right there should raise some eyebrows. Beyond that, those later writers tell us of places like the monastery at Medhamstead being burned to the ground in 870, with the holy people still inside. And again, that does sound horrific. And it is a story that has been repeated for centuries. However, in the meantime, we've gotten really good at archaeology and the analysis of records. And it turns out that the story of the burning of Medhamstead with the holy folk inside is a load of crap. The more mundane truth is that Medhamstead came under lay ownership and became a fortified complex. It wasn't burned. The monks weren't martyred. It was privatized, and the monks either moved on or found a new line of work. And we see plenty of religious houses changing hands or being abandoned during this period for reasons other than Vikings with an abundance of matches. I mean, similarly, the nunnery at Nasingbury was abandoned in the 800s, likely because it lost the patronage of the East Anglian royalty, and it had nothing directly to do with the Vikings. Also, as you might remember from earlier cultural episodes, the large-scale religious houses were falling out of favor, and holy people were moving to smaller communities, or even moving out on their own, long before the Vikings started showing up on our shores. In many cases, this change in ecclesiastical life wasn't the result of the Vikings, but rather, greedy local lords who kept nicking the monks' stuff. That said... Religious and learning centers were still seriously disrupted by the arrival of the Vikings. Monasteries and religious houses that were too exposed on the coasts, such as Abbas Selethris' community at Leminge, or the religious community at Lindisfarne, 
had to relocate to more defensible locations whenever possible. They were just too easy of a target out there on the raggedy edge. But moving inland came with its own problems. Because even in the best-case scenario, the lands that they left behind fell into disrepair. And in the worst cases, they fell into the hands of other people, like the lay lordship. Not only that, but the attacks themselves were a strain on the economy, which in turn resulted in decreased income and prosperity at all levels of society. There are records of Vikings despoiling crops and herds, what we would call foraging if it was done by our forces. And it's obvious why they did it. Vikings had to eat too, and they didn't politely pack their own lunch when they went pillaging. We've talked about foraging in the past, and I've tried to emphasize how damaging it is. It's tempting to look at it and think, well, that sucks, but just plant some new stuff and then go to the market and get some more food. But don't forget that this was a food-based economy. How are you going to get food at market when you have nothing to trade? Sure, you can plant a new crop, but what are you going to do until it's time to harvest? And where exactly do you plan on getting the seeds needed to plant that new crop anyway? And as for lost livestock, unless you have a hidden cache of coins that the Vikings didn't get, good luck replacing those. And in the meantime, how are you going to pay your rent? Your lord is still going to want food on his table after all, and you have an obligation. Viking attacks and subsequent foraging placed an incredible strain on the population as they tried to rebuild and ride out the ensuing famine. And these monasteries that were hit in the initial attacks weren't just quiet, isolated little bungalows containing devout monks. They were major political and economic centers. They were wealthy landowners. We're talking about a large-scale operation. And so when a band of Vikings came in, taking all their stuff and despoiling their food supply, a lot of people were suddenly in threat of starvation. And it wasn't just food production and local wealth that was impacted. Imagine how much energy would have to be channeled into either protecting against Viking attacks or repairing the damage done by Viking attacks. We read as early as 811, thanks to Archbishop Wolfred, that the local leadership had to mobilize the population to not just repair their own fortifications, but to also destroy the fortifications that the Vikings had used. You never really think about that, but that would require a lot of work. If they're going and building ramparts, you can't just leave them there. The Vikings will come back and use them again. So the monks and lords and the lay people that served them would have been heavily burdened by their duties of replacing crops, repairing buildings, and constructing fortifications. Or, in the case of many coastal religious houses, the duties of finding a new home. All of this would have placed a lot of pressure upon the religious communities, and as a result, we see many of them relocating, diminishing, or outright closing. And while later medieval writers cast this in the context of pyromania and religious zeal, it looks like, rather than a direct religious war, the closing of monasteries first had started before the Vikings arrived, and then when it increased after the Vikings did start attacking, it looks like it was a side effect of the Vikings seeking plunder, rather than their direct goal. But that being said, don't think that this era wasn't violent. It was. Frankly, it was incredibly violent. Which is likely why so many sought some sort of greater plan and purpose for what was happening. 
even if you ignore the religious context, which was what many of the writers were most upset about, the Viking attacks were still bringing violence to the island that was many magnitudes greater than anything they had known. For example, some of the most raucous and violent communities in the Christian West during this period were, you guessed it, the Irish. If you want an island that can take a punch and can definitely give a punch, look no farther than Ireland in the Middle Ages. In fact, some scholars have even used the term anarchic when talking about Ireland in this era. And yet, in the full bloom of the Viking Age, so from the middle 9th century to the middle 10th century, there were only 16 recorded instances of Irish raids taking part in pillaging and burning. Just 16. Compared to a staggering 110 by the Vikings. That's a 687% increase in raids over the local Irish population. And those were the slap-happy nutters of the European community. The staggering rise in raids gets even more pronounced when you look elsewhere in Europe. So while the religious motivations of the Vikings turned out to be largely a myth, the incredible violence that Scandinavia brought to their southern neighbors was not. This is how bad it was. There's a poem in an Irish codex that speaks of how the only time that you could be guaranteed a peaceful night was when the weather was bad. Quote, Bitter is the wind tonight. It tosses the white-waved sea. I do not fear the coursing of the great sea by the feared warriors from Loch Lane. End quote. Loch Lane was Norway. They're talking about the Vikings. And frankly, that writer knew what he was talking about. Between 795, which was when Iona was first struck, and 825, we see a tremendous amount of records in the Irish annals referring to Viking raids. Scotland and Ireland were under siege. In fact, Iona was so badly hit and in such rapid succession, with strikes in 795, 802, 806, and 807, and with monks being killed in the dozens in these attacks, that many of the monks were forced to relocate to Kells, which was northwest of Dublin. And even that drastic relocation would still not guarantee their safety. Because Ireland itself was deeply in danger, and the major Irish monastery of Armagh was raided three times in a single month in 832. Further, moving away from Iona didn't stop the attacks on the monastery there either. And in 825, three monks were martyred for refusing to tell the Vikingers where the shrine to St. Columba was. The Vikingers learned that these shrines had a lot of wealth in them. And, you know, they wanted it. And looking at the region as a whole, we see that in the first quarter of the 9th century, which was actually before the Viking Age really got going, and seriously, these are going to be the years that we look back on as the good old days before it started to get, you know bad. But even in these halcyon days, we're seeing records of a little over one Viking raid per year. One per year. And that's just the recorded attacks of just Ireland. Don't forget that they were also hitting everywhere else. Well, almost everywhere. It looks like Wales was a bit of a tough nut to crack for the Vikingers, so we don't see many recorded raids there. But everywhere else, they were showing up. And the Gaelic North and West were definitely taking a beating. In fact, the Scandinavians had also begun colonizing the Hebrides and other nearby islands. What the Irish called Inzigal, 
which means the islands of the foreigners, in the first half of the 9th century. So, right around where we're at now in the story. And that's right, the Scandinavians were colonizing these islands. They called them Sudhrear, the southern islands. And it should come as no surprise that we suddenly start to see Viking ship burials on the Scottish islands of Colonsay, Isla, and Aran, dated to around this point in history. We also have records from as early as 825 that speak of how the islands that were once held by Irish monks had now become uninhabitable due to Scandinavian attacks. And meanwhile, Orkney has almost certainly become a Norse launching pad for their raids. So for the people of Scotland and Ireland, these Vikingers weren't violent monsters from a distant land. They were neighbors. Shitty neighbors, but neighbors nonetheless. So, it was bad, especially for Scotland and Ireland. But crucially, as bad as the strikes were, the early ones rarely seemed to have penetrated more than 10 to 15 miles inland. This was a hit-and-run sea-based operation. Amusingly, it was remarkably similar to the strikes that we see hints of during the later Roman period, when the Saxon shore was under siege by pirates. The response by Roman Britannia was to fortify their towns and attempt to strengthen their sea presence. For the English, though, this style of attack was exactly the sort of thing that they were vulnerable to. They had war bands. Incredibly skilled war bands with a lot of history and honor wrapped up in them. But they were still war bands. And in the rare situations where these war bands managed to corner the Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons could do quite well in battle. The trouble, however, was that they were facing off with raiders that could appear at any number of ports without warning, and they could attack and get back on their ships before the warbands even knew what was happening, much less before they had a chance to get over there and fight. It was a style of fighting that called for a nationwide military resistance. But that wasn't how the English fought. The English relied on special forces. It was a style of fighting that even led them to occasionally engage in ritual combat. And it left the Anglo-Saxons vulnerable to any group that didn't play by those rules. It was a situation that the Vikingers were able to exploit with devastating effect. Further, when we look at written records, we see accounts that paint the Viking warrior elite as hyper-violent. And while we should keep in mind that what we know about them typically comes from Christian sources... We also have accounts from the Scandinavian point of view, like praise poems by scalds like Egil Skallagrimsson, and the ferocity of the Scandinavian warriors and how comfortable they were with bloodshed is something that both the Christians and the Scandinavians agree upon. The skaldic poems portray a reverence to violence that's really hard to miss. Here's what Egil wrote about Eric Bloodaxe. Quote, the destroyer of the Scots fed the wolves. He trod on the eagle's evening meal. The battle cranes flew over the rows of the slain. The beaks of the birds of prey were not free from blood. The wolf tore wounds and waves of blood surged against the raven's beaks. End quote. So, that certainly paints a picture. And Egil also wrote about the blood eagle, where we're told that the Scandinavians would cut open a man's ribcage and rip out his still-palpating lungs. Intense, right? 
And consequently, even the image their own skalds were giving us suggests that these Vikingers were not cuddly people. But it is also important to remember that this was the warrior elite. It wasn't the population at large. How many times have we had to make the distinction between the average Anglo-Saxon farmer and the werod, the men that Dr. Simmons describes as psychopathic peacocks? Not everyone in England was a professional warrior. In fact, barely anyone was. And the same is true for the Scandinavians. Hardly anyone was a Vikinger. And those that were generally only did it for a while. And then they used their loot to buy farms, lands, whatever. But those Vikingers were definitely violent. And while they were likely just as violent as the Anglo-Saxon warbands, it was the scale of their violence. The fact that they didn't exempt religious houses and the sheer number of attacks that really turned them into the boogeymen of Europe. And for good reason. Because the scale and number of attacks was staggering to behold and Europe was collapsing under the weight of it. It obviously was not the goal of the Vikingers. They couldn't have known what they were starting. But these attacks were changing the cultural and political landscape of the West. The shape of society itself was being altered, with even the European economy having to adapt. The raids led to populations concentrating in walled communities, as well as the further development of fortified towns, called burrs. This led to a boost in urbanization and trade for the British and Irish. Even the culture of the mighty Franks was being changed by the raiders from the north. The Carolingian Renaissance that was raging thanks to the efforts of Charlemagne would suddenly come grinding to a halt. Once the Northmen got involved, the courtly attention to learning and the growth of education and culture would shatter by the end of the 9th century. Some of the monastic centers did survive in their own way, but the explosion of knowledge that had only just started was taking a massive hit. Literacy rates were cratering, and books, which were priceless in this era, were lost on a tremendous scale. It's impossible to fully gauge the impact of the destruction of libraries that mark this period, but it is quite possible that the Viking strikes set Europe back significantly when it came to education. And politically, the Scandinavians were just as potent. We'll see them playing a role in politics on both sides of the channel, and a role that would have an impact that would reverberate throughout the centuries. Even 1066 can be traced back to this era, with a Vikinger named Rolfer, also known as Rollo, and his conquest of Normandy. Yeah, William the Conqueror and the House of Normandy finds its start during this period. And more directly, on our island, we'll see the fall of great kingdoms like Northumbria, Pictland, Strathclyde, and Mercia. These were all powerful kingdoms before the arrival of the Vikings. True, they had issues and weaknesses, but they were still the heavyweights of Britain. So much so that if you were a gambler, you might have placed money on England being ruled by Northumbria or Mercia, and Scotland being ruled by the Picts or maybe the Strathclyde Britons. And yet after the Viking attacks and the subsequent Danish occupation, we suddenly find Wessex as the main contender, while their rival kingdoms had been largely wiped from the map. And up north in Scotland, we see a shifting of the balance of power away from the Pictish dynasties and towards the Scots, 
thanks in no small part to the losses suffered by Strathclyde and Pictland, as well as their allies. This era is going to change everything. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at BritishPodcast. And we're just about everywhere else. You can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>